three famous stories, the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. What we're going to see in each of these is that being lost, a lost person, it does not mean fool, idiot, or outsider. Lost means loved. So let's dive into Luke 15 and check this out. Starting in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So right off the bat, the context, Jesus is getting critiqued for the crowd that he hangs out with, the crew that he runs with. They are seen as the rough and ragged, the outlaws and so on. They are the lost in the day. And for the Pharisees and teachers of the law, there's a sense that these are those who need to get their act together get back in church. They need to go find God and settle things up with their creator, right? So Jesus is getting critiqued. He doesn't just hang out with them. He has meals. He is, he is with them. He is in life walking with them. And so Jesus responds to his critics, and it says, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. All right, well, so Jesus responds to his critics. He tells this story of a shepherd. We'll call him Billy. And so Billy is out in the fields one day with his sheep, and, and suddenly he realizes, oh no, one has gone missing. And so he asks his audience the obvious question, wouldn't you leave the 99 and go off running and go out and find that one lost sheep? And all of us, as 21st century Westerners, uh, with our total lack of sheep herding experience, nod our heads up and down and go, yes, of course. You love that sheep. You drop everything. You go after that missing one. Dumb Westerners. <laughs> no, there is this sense that, man, you stick with the safe bet, right? Like you've got the 99, they are secure, and if you leave them, you are leaving them open to wolves and uh, bears and wanderer, wandering predators. They could wander off, and you could have a lot more missing. You could come back to find yourself with 99 problems and a sheep just one, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Somebody got that. All right. <laughs> Man, see, I, I imagine Jesus asked this question and know-it-all Joe in the back raises his hand and goes, no, you stick with the safe bet, the 99. But God missed Economics 101. <laughs> Jesus tells us that God is like Billy. He's a shepherd who runs out after the lost sheep. So Jesus, if you can imagine this picture where Billy is, you know, he's, he's tracking the open trails. He is wandering through uh, the bushes and bumbling through the brambles and climbing the rocky crags until he comes across this missing lamblet, right? And Jesus tells us when he discovers the missing sheep that he joyfully puts it over his shoulders to carry it home. Now, there's a couple of things that seem crazy about that to me. First, man, I would expect 
to him, you know, I'd expect him to greet the sheep with like a livid lecture. Like, where have you been? Don't you know how far I've been looking? Like, why can't you be like your responsible 99 brothers and sisters, right? But Jesus tells us there's no finger wagging. No, I told you so. He doesn't deliver him a angry lecture, but rather he is filled with joy. That God is flooded with joy to discover us in our distance. And when God finds us, he doesn't give us a roadmap with directions. All right, here's how you can go find your way back home. No, Jesus tells us he is delighted to throw us over his shoulders and carry us there himself. God is a reckless shepherd who comes after us, his wandering and missing sheep. And God is filled with joy to bring us back home. When he gets home, God wants to share this joy. And so Jesus tells us that Billy throws a party. He calls his neighbors and friends and he tells them, come rejoice with me for I have found my last sheep. And this is crazy too, because who throws a party for their pet? <laughs> like maybe some people today, I don't know. But I, I, I can remember, uh, yeah, I heard a story recently of a conference where they had people with pets and these elaborate, you know, thousand dollar meals and crazy, I don't know, so maybe they would. But for most of us, right, probably not. I, I can remember once we lost our pet Iggy once. It was our cat. And Iggy was uh, kind of hanging out on the second story window seal in the bathroom. And um, my wife and I were dating at the time. This is about a decade ago. And at one point, Iggy stumbles and falls out the window. She was kind of a clumsy thing, right? So she falls into the bushes and uh, my, you know, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, you know, she's freaked out and, and uh, she loves this cat. And personally, I I don't know. I'm not a cat fan, right? <laughs> I could have been, I would have been fine to say, ah, Iggy will find her way home, you know. But my wife, no, it was like, dude, we need to drop everything. So I canceled all my appointments and, and events that day. And, and we went out and just kind of scouring the neighborhood for hours, just looking for Iggy. And after a couple hours, eventually, we found her. We heard her kind of purring in the bushes and we came home and brought her home. And, and we were stoked. We were happy. But I was kind of like, Let's kick back and watch Netflix stoked, right? Like get some takeout. Not let's throw hundreds of dollars and throw a big bash and call all our neighbors and have a big barbecue to celebrate our cats back, right? I can kind of imagine, you know, I can hear the voice of my friends on the phone. You want me to come over and celebrate what? Like, no, our cat, Iggy, she's back, right? But God has given us this picture that God is like this reckless shepherd. He's filled with joy and he wants to throw a bash to celebrate and tell the whole town. They were lost, and now they're found. I've got them. I brought them home. So great big observation number one here is that lost doesn't mean the sheep needs to go out and find God. Lost means that God, the good shepherd, is coming out to find the missing sheep. And God celebrates people we wouldn't expect and goes farther is longer, works harder to bring us home than we could imagine. All right, well, to hammer home the point, Jesus gives us a second similar parable. He goes on to say, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This next story, a woman loses a coin. We'll call her Annie. Right? She kind of loses this coin. And unfortunately, this is before the age of metal detectors. So Jesus tells us she lights a lamp and she's up all night turning over the couch cushions and looking underneath the, you know, uh, the cabinet and scouring all the dresser drawers, trying to find this one missing lost coin. Once again, Jesus asked the question, wouldn't you? And I'm not so sure, right? I love my sleep. I've got nine other perfectly good coins. And if I stay up all night looking for this one, I might, you know, sleep through my alarm and be late for work and lose my job where I earn my coins, right? And so I would probably, again, just stick with the safe bet. <clears throat> Keep my nine and get some rest. But Jesus tells us that God slept through math class, right? Like our creator is not an accountant calmly counting the cost. He is not, uh, uh, he is not uh, th like the, this, uh, this lady kind of demurely discerning the decision, right? Jesus tells us that God is crazy Annie, turning over the couches, flipping over the, the cabinets, scouring the house up all night through the night looking for that one missing coin. God is a frantic woman up all night looking for lost change. That's the posture Jesus tells us that God has towards us and his willingness to come for us and reach into wherever we're at and find us and bring us home. Once again, we see that lost here does not mean we need to go find God. Man, we're talking about a coin, right? A sedentary hunk of metal. No one expects the coin to pick itself up and go find God. The emphasis here is on the God who comes to search to seek and to save the lost. Well, similarly, in these first two stories, if you kind of notice, Jesus is gradually upping the ante. He's increasing the value, right? So he starts with, uh, you know, one sheep out of a hundred, one out of a hundred. Then he moves to one coin out of ten, and he's about to move to one son out of two. He's increasing the percentage from 1% uh, to 10%. He's about to go to 50%. And he's raising the stakes. He's throwing all the chips down, going from a lamb to some cold, hard cash to a child. Jesus wants us to feel the elevation building of the value of what's at stake here. So he moves into the parable of the lost son. So Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Let's stop there for a minute. Uh, so this is a famous story, often called the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. And the story opens where 
uh, the son, he says, hey, dad, give me my inheritance. And he's essentially in that culture saying, hey, drop dead dad. Like, all I want is the stuff. I don't want to be in life with you. I want what you can get me. And I want to distance myself from you. And I'm going to run off to this distant land. I'm going to squander it on myself and live for myself. Now, in our day and age, that actually sounds kind of normal, right? Like, we tell young adults, you know, like, hey, get out of your parents' basement. Go make a name for yourself. Get, you know, they'll bless you with some funds to kind of get off on your own two feet. But in the ancient Near East, in the original context here, this was an unjust, this was injustice. This was uh, a, a seen as a violation of the welfare and flourishing of the community. Because back in that day, like property and, and, all, and, and things were handed down. And so the goal was that dad would kind of uh, help build, uh, you know, this community and care, for, that they as a family would care for their community, and that that legacy would get passed on to the son, and so he would receive the inheritance. So the goal was to steward it for the well-being of the family and everyone connected to them and, and the well-being of the broader neighborhood. And so when he takes that and runs off on his own, man, it's seen as like he's throwing a sledgehammer into the flourishing and well-being of the neighborhood. And so he heads off for the distant land, and his reasons for going are ultimately selfish, right? He wants to spend the money on himself. So he's not, you know, Dad, I got to leave for a while to go care for Grandma, you know. He's not out, like, seeking to help make international peace. Like, he's off to live for himself. And if we think back in the, in the context here, we read at the beginning that Jesus is being critiqued for being with the tax collectors, and the sinners, right? The tax collectors, they were seen as like this uh, prodigal son, right? Like they were those who compromised. They were collaborators with the empire. They were working for Rome, and they were basically uh, fueling the oppression of the community. And as the community was oppressed, they would often skim off the top and take some to enrich themselves. So the tax collectors were seen as yeah, these compromisers, you guys have sold out and you're working for the man, right? Like the system and you're, you've got your boot on our neck to help yourself get ahead. And the sinners, uh, this is kind of a, you know, catch-all term, but the sense here is these are those who were uh, destroying the social fabric of the community. They were living in ways that not only hurt themselves, but actually depleted kind of the well-being of their neighbors and those around them. They were like those throwing that sledgehammer right into the heart of the neighborhood. And so this picture of this lost son who runs off, it resonates with those that Jesus is hanging out with, those that he has gone to find, his crew. And when he gets to his lowest point, we read that he hired himself out to help raise the pigs. And pretty soon he's in the pig slop and the mud, and he's so hungry, he's longing just to eat what the pigs are eating. And that image was loaded in Jesus' day. The uh, pigs were, uh, Jew the Jewish people were not allowed to eat pigs. They were seen as an unclean animal. So this is kind of a sign that he's out in Gentile territory, that he is off in the distance in a land of uncleanness, and he's found himself at rock bottom, unclean himself, not only physically dirty and in the muck and the mud, but at the end of his rope, 
in a land of uncleanness where he has squandered everything on himself and spiritually he has corrupted his condition like he is in a gnarly spot. Well, what happens next? <clears throat> when he came to his senses, and I love that, Jesus is like, when he finally woke up, like, what am I doing here, right? He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. All right, well, I love this as he kind of comes to his senses and he's like, wait a minute. Even dad's servants have it better, way better than I do. And so I'm going to go back. I know I'm no longer worthy to be a son, but I'm just going to go back and ask, can I at least be part of the hired help? That itself would be an act of mercy. So as he's getting ready to go, Jesus says he's preparing the speech. When I see him, here's what I'll tell him. I've sinned against heaven and against you, and here's what I'll do. If you, if you, and so he's rehearsing and planning and preparing this thing. All his hopes are set in just getting some crumbs from the table. Jesus says while he was still a long ways off, the father spots him. It's a sense that the father is out gazing upon the horizon, looking intently for any sign of his son. That God is on the lookout, waiting for any sign that we're ready. And when he saw that he was a long ways off, he ran to him, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son starts to kind of set in on the speech. Dad, I've sinned against heaven against you. And the dad interrupts him. Jesus says he won't even let him get, him get, through, get through the speech, right? He interrupts him mid-sentence and calls his servants. Says, hey, kill the fattened calf. Let's throw the biggest celebration the town's ever seen. Because my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. God is an Olympic father. Right? He's a gold medal runner. And the finish line is his child. As we turn to him, we find that God is not an academic waiting us to give a lecture on all the ways we've, things we've done wrong. Rather, God's a disco owner waiting to throw us a celebration, right? Kick up the music, turn the lights, and, and throw us a party. And it is significant. There's a posture shift in the son, right? It says when he came to his senses and he turns back. And it, it, but when he changed, came to his senses and he turns back, he finds himself turning towards a father who has already turned towards him. And that posture is reflected. It's not like, you know, he comes back with the booze and the prostitutes and he's like, hey, dad, I'm home. We're just going to trash your place and throw a big party, right? Like that probably wouldn't have gone down well. There's a posture of repentance, of, of confession, of recognizing I've sinned against heaven against you. 
But as he turns from the distant land towards the father, he finds that the father's eyes are already out and his legs are set running towards him. There's a theologian I love, a guy named Miroslav Volf, and he talks about this embrace, the father's embrace, and how there are uh, kind of four movements to an embrace, right? The first movement is, is the opening of the arms. And so we see here like this father where, where God is like a father whose arms are open towards us. But the second movement in the embrace is, is for the, uh, the, the person who's being approached, whether they want to receive that or not. You know, like um, some people might open their arms towards me and I might run, right? Bolt. Or, uh, or do we enter in and we receive, we enter into that embrace. This is the third movement is sort of the, the clasp, right? The actual whole, the embrace itself were held. And the fourth movement is where we release and let the person kind of step back into their own identity and where we're with one another and known by each other together. And I love that because one of the things Jesus shows us in all three of these is that God's posture is towards us in a, in a pursuing embrace. This is not some distant God hanging back in the universe, waiting for us to kind of follow any trail of breadcrumbs we can to go find him. Rather, Jesus reveals the pursuing God. He's like that reckless shepherd, that crazy woman, that Olympic father who's coming after us at any cost to wrap his arms around us and to embrace us as soon as we're ready to receive it. But God's posture towards you is open this morning. His arms are ready. They're, they're outstretched. He's come for us in Christ to embrace us, to throw us over his shoulders and to bring us home and throw us the biggest party that the town's ever seen. All right, well, what does this mean for us today? How, how, how do we kind of apply this? And uh, there's, if, if the picture here is that lost doesn't mean we need to go find God, but rather God is the one coming to find us, does that have any practical relevance or application for you and I today? I believe it has some powerful implications. I want to look at two in particular. The first one is to ask, where do you need to receive God's pursuit in your life today? Are there areas that feel lost, distant, broken, where we need to receive the healing embrace of the Father, the presence of Jesus, and the power of his Spirit? When I think about this, I think of uh, Jim and Sarah and, and Misha. So we, are, we have kind of a, a movement of foster families in our church. Uh, my wife and I have, have stepped into that as well over the years, and, and it's just been powerful to see this flood of families wanting to embody God's pursuing embrace and embrace vulnerable children in our city. And so Jim and Sarah, uh, they uh, received Misha into their home. And Misha, is a, she was a teenager, and she had been uh, trafficked sexually in the, in the sex trafficking industry. So as Misha came into their home, uh, she was scarred, right? Like she had some brutal history. She had been crushed in the distant land, right? And she entered in, Jim and Sarah said, man, we just want to wrap our arms around her. We want to give her everything we've got. We want to love her, kind of head over heels just before her. 
And the first week or two was kind of the honeymoon stage where everything was going great and uh, Misha was loving it and they were like, oh, isn't this perfect? But shortly after that, reality began to kick in and hit, right? Uh, <clears throat> Misha, a lot of, uh, you know, her, her abuse that she had endured began to come out in these gnarly behaviors and she would rail against the mom and just kind of, you know, call her every name in the book and mom wasn't one of them, Right? This loud string of invective, right? And yet on the other side, she would flirt with Jim, right? Because this is the way that she had learned to get attention, right? to be safe, to have some measure of control. And Jim wouldn't respond, you know, but, uh, but still it introduced this tension in their family and in their marriage where Jim and Sarah are like, how are we going to handle this? God, what do we do? And so they, you know, they, they, they endured through it. And about six months in, they said, hey, you know, Let's get out, night on the town. We need a break. We need a rest. And so they hired a babysitter, got some, they came, and they, they kind of got dressed to the nines and went out for a fancy dinner, night on the town. Well, they came home just feeling so refreshed. They're like, oh, that was so good. It's good to be back. So they came home, and they saw the babysitter when they came in, and she was like, oh, Misha was great. Everything went well, and they were just like so, so happy. And so they walk upstairs to get ready for bed, and Jim goes into the bathroom and says, oh my gosh, Sarah, don't come in here. Her curiosity has peaked, and so she begins to kind of come across the room, and Jim begins trying to close the door, and she gets there first, and the door kind of hits, and she pushes her way in, and she looks and finds that Misha has taken her red lipstick and scrawled all over the bathroom mirror and all over the bathroom walls, F you, mom. F you, mom. F you, mom. And Jim is just like, oh, no, right? Like, we shouldn't have gone out. That was a mistake. Misha wasn't ready. This is going to destroy Sarah. Uh, what, what have we done? We just, we, I don't know if we even should have stepped into this. And uh, this was a mistake. And he looks over, though, and to his surprise, he finds that Sarah is laughing. Like it begins with kind of this slow chuckle and gradually begins to build up from the, the depths of her, her chest up through her lungs until she's just roaring in laughter and she falls over onto the bathroom floor and is crumpled over in a heap of laughter and tears, just roaring hysterically. And Jim is like, she's lost it. She's gone, gone. I knew this was a mistake. Oh my gosh. And finally, he's able to get her like, Sarah, what is so funny? And through her laughter and tears, she's able to tell him, she called me mom. She called me mom. It was the first time that Misha had called her mom. I love how God loves our angry prayers. So I think often, even if we've come to Christ, even if we've been in, in life with God for years, there can still be kind of corners or places in our heart that we kind of feel we need to protect God from, right? Like this, this corner is too dirty. This place is too dark. This thing, if God really saw, it's not worthy of him. And so I think like Jim, we feel this is our, we, I, we need to protect God right? And so let's keep God, you know, out of the bathroom, kind of like keeping Sarah out of the bathroom, and let's get some, you know, Windex or 401, and let's clean up 
the walls. Let's scrub off the bathroom. Maybe we'll leave a little post-it note on the window that says, you know, sorry, God, I had a bad day, right? We're not going to let him see what's really the full throttle anger, sadness, grief that's going on inside of us. But the reality is that you and I are like Misha. We have been beat up by the world. We live in a fallen creation and gnarly things happen and it tears at our, not only at our bodies, but at our soul. It leaves places that are wounded, places that have been crushed, both by things we've done and things that have been done to us. The beauty, however, is that God is like Sarah. That God is big enough to take whatever we've got to bring. And that God is not going, hey, it sucks that you're lost. I'll hang out here in the back, and when you kind of get your stuff figured out, you can come find me. No, God says, because you're lost, I'm coming out to find you. I think the whole point of these parables, like they wouldn't actually be lost if there wasn't someone who missed them, right? Like if they were just out there, they'd just be there somewhere else. The, Jesus is drawing our eyes to the passionate, relentless heartbeat of God whose affection is for you, whose desire is for you, who comes after not only your shiny good stuff, but even more so wants to enter into those parts that have been cracked and broken, those places that have been marked by the distant land. So the invitation this morning is for us to bring the fullness of who we are and where we're at. I believe prayer can be so powerful in this vein. Because prayer, it's not just kind of this routine that we kind of come and say the right words we think God wants to hear. Prayer is communion with our creator where we bring him all of who we are and all of where we're at and we lay it before him. And as we turn to the Father to bring it, we find in his spirit that his posture, he's already been there turned towards us. His invitation is to bring to God this morning, wherever we're at. I, I love this about the Psalms, how the psalmists are regularly just, they just feel total freedom to bring God everything. God, where are you? How long, O oh Lord, until you show up? Why did this happen? What's going on? In the process, they pour out where they're at to God and they find their eyes turned again in hope and confidence, not in what they've prayed, but in who God is. That the hope and power of our prayer, like more important than the content of our prayers, is the one to whom they are addressed. That he is our refuge. He is our rock. And it's true that over time, there will probably be gradual growth in trust, right? If 10 years later, Misha's still, F you mom, F you mom, that's probably a sign something's not quite right, right? As we grow in this process of, uh, of pressing into the arms of the Father, there grows a trust and a confidence in who he is for us. But the beauty is we get to come as we are. And these days, I think it can be so much easier to kind of, you know, take our anger or our grief and fire off an angry Facebook post or lash out at our kids or whatever else it might be, but God's inviting us to bring it to him. He's the one who's big enough to take it and he's the right person to bring it. And he's come for us in order to encounter us there. 
So this morning, the invitation is to come as you are. No matter how long your rap sheet is, how much time you've served, no matter how much you've messed up your kids or alienated your spouse, no matter how depressed you are or unworthy you feel, no matter how much you've had maybe the wrong priorities and compromised being the kind of person that God desires for you to flourish and for the well-being of the neighborhood. Wherever you're at, we can come as we are because God has already come for us. As we come this morning, we come to Christ, the one who has come and given it all to find us in the distant land. The Father has come for us in Christ and the power of his spirit to embrace us, call us his own. So part of the invitation this morning is, man, there will be people at the the back corners there for prayer. And if you've got something that's just laying heavy, that, that, that area that you just need to bring before the Father, I would encourage you this morning to do that with someone else. You come and lay it together. And there's something when we vocalize it, when we speak it before God, before others, we put it out there. There's a power, I believe, that gets broken as God's spirit enters and heals. So the second question, you know, the first one is, where do you need to receive that pursuit? Uh, But for some of us this morning, the question might be, who is it that you need to pursue in your life? Because the pursuing God makes us a pursuing people. One of the things that uh, strikes me, if you, if you think about the context again, is that Jesus was seen as, he was being critiqued that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Right? That he welcomes and eats with. And I'm struck by that, the fact that, that he ate with them was a, a significant issue. Right? There's something about the dinner table. Right? That Jesus... Is not just, he didn't just show up and be like, hey, you guys can come to my church, right? He goes to their house and he eats with them. They throw some steaks on the grill, they pop open a bottle and they talk into the night, right? That's not just, hey, hey, I'll come invite you to my thing. That's, hey, I want to step into your life. So I think one of the questions this morning for some of us is, is there someone that God is calling you to pursue, to step in with? We see that each of these parables ends with a feast, a celebration. That's partly the point, right? He's going, man, there's more rejoicing and celebration going on in the kingdom of heaven when one person encounters grace. And these celebrations, that means that our feast, our signpost, our dinner table can become a place that's like a signpost of the hospitality of God and the celebration that's going on in heaven. Is there someone, not just the normal, you know, not just our buddies or our friends, but when was the last time you invited someone over that you disagree with? Reached out to someone that you think is bad for society. I believe there's something about the dinner table that humanizes people. It turns them from categories into human beings, from inconveniences into image bearers. Maybe I know we have such a divided culture right now. 
We think about the divisions that we've seen between urban and rural, uh, divisions between uh, Republican and Democrat, divisions between uh, religious divisions, political divisions, ideological divisions. There are so many arenas right now in which our society just feels fractured. The social media divides and the people lobbing bombs against each other on both sides. What would it look like for the dinner table to become a place of hospitality where we could reach across quote-unquote enemy lines, right? And we could invite and bring people around and we can humanize them and the dinner table can become a place that we embody the hospitality of God, that we reach out to those who are lost as the pursuing God wants to make us a pursuing people who can reach into the lives of those around us. All right, well, finally, as we do this, I, so I think for some of us, there are, and for some of us, the call is, man, there's this area of my life that I, I want to receive God's pursuit. The invitation is just lay it out there in prayer. For others of us, we've God is calling us to pursue some unlikely folks, right? To embody the pursuing love of God for others in your neighborhood. And as we do this, as we come to the table this morning, to the bread and the wine of communion, we're reminded that Jesus is a better older brother. Jesus is a better older brother. And this is what I mean by that. The, the, the story of the prodigal son, the lost son, it doesn't end there, right? There's an ending. I'll, I'll just kind of summarize it for now. But, but after they, they get the party going and the father's throwing this feast and the whole neighborhood's coming over and the servants and everyone is just living it up. But the older brother, the other one who stuck around, he's out in the backyard weeping and gnashing his teeth in the darkness. He's refusing to enter the celebration party because of his pride and his refusal to let go of his own reputation and how hard he's worked and all that. I believe Jesus is giving us here a picture of the Pharisees and teachers of the law that we saw at the beginning of this, the, these parables who are muttering against him. Man, he's hanging out with those lost, those sinners, right? Jesus is landing, like, I, I think in part, the point of these three parables has been a critique of the older brother. He's going, man, you guys have been like this, but God is like this. He's like a shepherd. No, I'm going to up the ante. He's like this crazy woman looking for the lost coin. No, I'm going to go all out. He is this father running to embrace his lost son. And yet you guys, you, 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 you elite, you've been standing back just protecting your own, protecting yourself. And as we come to Jesus, the beauty is that Jesus is a better older brother. Jesus left the Father's home for the distant land to come and find us. And when he, when he does, as Jesus finds us, again, he doesn't just give us a roadmap. He throws us over his shoulders. He does the work. He carries us back into the presence of God. Because I found myself asking one time, man, why is it you've got, you know, the, uh, in the, the sheep and the woman with the coin, like, God's image is he's the one pursuing. So why didn't the father go off to the distant land to find the son? And what struck me was going, oh, that's part of the point. It's, the point is the older brother was supposed to and didn't. But Jesus is a better older brother who does. 
And as we turn this, as we turn from this, we look into the gospel as a whole, what we find is that the Father has come to the distant land for us. That the Father has pursued us in the distant land through Christ, his Son, where he finds us and in the power of his Spirit, he brings us back into the very life of God. Communion with our Creator, intimacy with the lover of our soul, the one we were made for, will stop at nothing to bring us home. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your relentless love, God. The fact that you do not stand far off in the distance and wait for us to kind of figure things out and get our act together and go find you. God, thank you that you are the pursuing God. God, you are Jesus. You are that shepherd who came out and, man, left the safe bet and came after us in the distant country. You are, Jesus, that crazy Annie, God, flipping over the couches and the cupboards and just tearing the house apart. It could look reckless to the outside world, but it makes total sense when we tap into your relentless love for us, God. And Jesus, that you are the older brother who came to find us in the distant land. And Father, you have come for us in Christ. In the power of your spirit, God, you desire to bring us home. And so I I pray that this morning, God, if there are any uh, kind of dark corners in our life, God, like Misha, Lord, if there are those areas that we want to kind of protect and hide, maybe we want to protect you from it, God, because we feel like it's too tough for you to handle. Or maybe we want to protect ourselves because we don't want you to have access to that place. Father, I pray that this morning your spirit would kind of pry open the hinges and the locked doors, God, hiding those places in our heart. Holy Spirit, that you would take residence there. Begin to bring it all out before you in prayer, God, before others, that that there would just be kind of a, a, a cleansing, God, where all of who we are gets to come before all of who you are. And Jesus, I also, uh, man, we pray, God, if there are people that you are calling us to invite to the dinner table, God, those who are lost, are distant, or whatever, and we're, rather than pointing our finger from the distance, God, that those areas that we might look down on some or see them as being beyond the pale of redemption, God, that we would take that as a, a cue from you, Holy Spirit. Perhaps they're the one you're inviting us to reach out to, to bring around our table, God. Jesus, we ultimately we, we lift up and exalt you as the one who has come for us, who has found us in the distant land. We glorify you in the power of your spirit and to the glory of, your, of the Father. Amen.